Good morning. Are you tired of seeing me yet? Yes. Hi, love. Let me start with a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, you are so good. Thank you that we have this congregation where we can come together and hear your word. Lord, I ask that you would move me out of the way, that you would speak to each of us, that we would not only understand, but be able to apply, that you would touch us deep in our souls. In your name we pray, amen. If you could pull out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is conveniently located on page 840. Let me read, starting in chapter 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, 
Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You may recall that we have been going through Mark these last several months. And Mark, as a review, was written by Mark as Peter, the apostle, was his source, and his target audience was Gentiles, not Jews, most of us. Today, we will see Jesus' encounter with a Gentile community, especially those on the fringe, the fringe of the community, outcasts, the unknown, the feared. Our main point is that Satan's kingdom is subject to Christ's authority, breaking the bonds which constrain us. When we are touched by Christ, when we abide in him, we are freed from fear by his power, his purity, and even his knowledge of his mercy. Recall last week, Elliot spoke to us from Mark chapter 4. Jesus had had a busy day, one of many. He told his disciples, let us go across to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That was his objective. He was exhausted from preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. And then on top of that, the storm of all storms hit them on the way across. Jesus was so exhausted that he was asleep in the boat and the storm didn't even wake him. The disciples were fearful and they went into a panic. So Jesus' rest was interrupted. Jesus calmed the storm and then he take the op- took the opportunity to continue to train his disciples. I think I would have gone back to sleep, but not Jesus. So the curtain rises on chapter 5 of Mark. Perhaps we expect Jesus to arrive on the shore and get the rest that he desires. Let's see what we can learn and apply. 5 verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. You probably have a note in your Bible. Gerasenes, Gadarenes, this little local area was known by several names. There was a city in there called Gadara, named after the tribe of Gad. And if we could, Cassie, could you pull up our our map, please? Sorry for those who are remote that you can't see my little pointer here. Jesus was up here in the in Palestine, up in actually Galilee. Why is that not working? That's okay. Up in Galilee, and he crossed over the Sea of Galilee over to this area called the Decapolis. And 
you can see here there's the city called Gadara, very close to the Sea of Galilee. That was the, where the name came that we see in the, in the scripture. This area is very, uh, this is mountainous over here. Sea of Galilee is low, about 700 feet below sea level. And it comes up these steep mountains here into this area called the Decapolis. Now, Decapolis is, means 10, Deca is 10. And the reason they call it that is there was originally 10 cities. Um, one of the cities is off the map here. It's, it's up here a little bit. It's called Damascus. You may have heard of it. Thanks, Cassie. Originally 10 cities. If you were to count the cities that I had up there, it's not 10. It's kind of like if you follow college sports and you're familiar with the Big Ten Conference. That conference started off with 10 teams, but they added some. They're now up to 14, and they still call it the Big Ten Conference. I used to think people in the Midwest didn't know how to add, but I find that's not true. They just didn't feel like changing the name of their conference every time they added a team. Same thing here. The Decapolis was the area. Cities came, cities went. They still called it that same, that same region as the Decapolis. So why is this important? This used to be a Jewish location. You, if you recall, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, he brought them through the wilderness. They were poised on the east side of the Jordan River, and they were all ready to go in and conquer Canaan. And three groups just said, you know, this is a kind of a nice area. It really works well for our agriculture. Can we stay here? And Joshua said, no. God says, we're going over to the other side. Oh, can we please stay? We'll come and help you conquer the Canaanites, but then when we're done, we'll come back over here. Is that okay? So there was a reluctantly acquiescence on Joshua's part. He said, okay. So everybody went over, conquered Canaan, or kind of conquered it, but that's a different story. And then when they were done, Gad, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh went back over to the east side of the Jordan River and set up their homelands there. And they thought, everything's going to be great. We know that there's a boundary here, this river, but we're going to set up this big pile of stones so we'll all remember that we're all one people and we'll all be together. And that worked for a very short time. But the Jordan River is a river, and it's a nat natural defensive boundary. So the other tribes in the area came and wanted to intermarry, maybe do some raiding, maybe some raiding going back and forth. The, the Israelite tribes on the East Bank kind of started having their relationship with God watered down. Oh, it's not really important that we go worship in the temple. It's not really important we have these sacrifices. We can worship some of these other idols. And then there's the period of the conquest 
We had the Assyrians come in and conquer. We had the Babylonians come in and conquer. We had the Persians come in and conquer. And by the time of Jesus, there was no distinction between the people on the East Bank, this area of Decapolis, and the rest of the pagan world. They were not Jewish in the slightest. So that's where we have. We have this, this little city named Gadarene. And that's really about all that's left of the heritage of those two and a half tribes of Israel. It's very Gentile. Continuing on, verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out from the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we see at the beginning of this passage, Mark's favorite word, immediately. Jesus barely steps out of the boat, and the story starts happening. Now let me put a little side note here. Scripture records this story in three places. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Mark and the Luke version are very specific they talk about Jesus' interaction with a demon-possessed man. Matthew gives us further information and talks about the fact that there were two men, but there's not a conflict here because the Mark and Luke version focus on the one that had the legion that was doing all the talking. So if you look, go to Matthew, you can say, oh, what's this, two men? No, there was, there was two men there, but we're going to focus today on the one that interfaces with Jesus. Okay, are we there? So, immediately, as Jesus enters the boat, or exits the boat, this guy, or these guys, from afar off, they see Jesus, and they come running. Why would they come running? Well, they recognize Jesus. I don't think it's the man who recognizes Jesus. So it must be the demon in him that knows Jesus. Of course, all demons know who the Son of God is. That triune God of which Jesus is part. They know him. And he comes running. Now, why does he come running? It could be that there is a supernatural reason that they come, they, they know Jesus, and there's almost like a, a command, you come here, they couldn't help themselves. Or it could be that the, that the demoniac said, oh, I, I know who this is because the demon inside me is telling me, and I want to get healing, so he comes running. I kind of lean towards the, for, the former. In any case, they come out of the tombs, and let's talk about the tombs for a little bit. The tombs are caves in the hills. 
This, as I mentioned before, is a very hilly region. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level. This rises up to um, a plateau, and in the, in the middle of these, these hills, rough terrain. In fact, this plateau, you may have heard in the last couple, three or four or five decades, we call it the Golan Heights now. So that's kind of where we are. And there were these caves in the hills, and that's where they put their dead. Not in grass-grown, mowed cemeteries, but they put them in these caves. The unclean spirit, the possessed men, the Nibaniacs, are there. And we know a little bit about them. They're not just uh, standard Joes walking down the street. It's kind of like the Incredible Hulk. They are repeatedly bound. They have chains on. They have shackles. Those of you who don't know, shackles are the, the bracelets that go over the, the wrists or the feet, so, and they're tied together with a bar or a chain so they, they can't, their movement is restricted. This guy is breaking the chains and breaking the shackles. Amazing strength. And he's cutting himself with stones. He's defacing God's creation. We can see that although physical things are happening, there is a spiritual battle going on. It's not just the binding him with human chains. There's a spiritual battle going on inside this man. We had Prince read this morning from Ephesians 6. Let me read one of the verses. Let me repeat that. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not a flesh and blood battle, my friends. It's spiritual. There are demons present. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on demons, but I do want to make a few observations. I don't see a lot of demons as I'm walking down PCH. I don't see a lot of people possessed by demons. And I think most of us are the same way. Most of America kind of puts demons into the myth or fairy tale area. That's not true. And people tend to have one of two extremes when we think about demons. The first is disbelief. Oh, demons don't exist. They're kind of a, a fairy tale, a myth. But if you've ever spent time in a third world mission field, I think you will be able to vouch that their demon activity is very real and very powerful. The other extreme is an unhealthy interest in demons in the occult. Let's get Junior a Ouija board. That'll be fun. For our party, let's have a seance. Let me go to a psychic. That'll be, that'll be good. I want to see what my future is. My friends, that's dangerous. Don't go there. Don't do that. We need to be aware of the spiritual battle that's going on around us, but not get sucked in. Does that make sense? So back to this demoniac. He was out there yelling, cutting himself, breaking chains. He was not popular with the local inhabitants. Think about 
the graveyard. You know, we look at a graveyard, nice cut grass, got some tombstones. You can go there during the day. But at night, that's where they center a lot of our horror movies. It's a creepy place. Think about this. Here were these hills, undulating hills, with these caves in it, desolate, these demoniacs howling through the night, echoing through the caves, echoing across the valleys. If you go walking through there, you don't know what's in those caves. You know there's dead bodies. There might be animals. There might be one of the demoniacs in one of these caves. They're moving around. It's not a fun place to be. They're crying out at night, echoing across the land. When I was a young kid, it was popular, I don't know how popular, but parents that had children that were not behaving would threaten them, if you don't behave, if you don't go to bed, if you don't eat your peas, the boogeyman's going to come and get you. I can see some of you know that story, and others of you are going, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm sure that the parents here are not using that kind of parenting technique, but that was a reasonably popular thing for frustrated moms and dads to try to get some compliance. I can imagine, and this is an imagine, that these Gentile parents, these moms who just need a little bit of rest, trying to get their kid to behave, would call out, if you're not, you hear that? You hear that sound? If you're not good, if you don't obey me, the gathering demoniac is going to come and get you. That would get my attention. His, he was not popular. He broke the shackles and he broke the chains in which he was placed. But he's imprisoned by a much stronger chain, spiritual chains. And that's where I want to focus today. We have spiritual chains. So think about that. What chains are binding you? Verse 6. And when he, the demoniac, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out loud, in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Let me put this in chronological sequence for us. Jesus and his disciples come ashore. They're tired. They're looking for rest. The demoniacs see Jesus, and they run to him. Not away, but toward him, like we discussed. They fall and worship. He falls and worships him. Now, this is not a fall like he's running at, toward Jesus and he trips and falls. The Greek makes it clear that it's implicit that it's an act of worship. Jesus is commanding this demon, come out of him. And he does this more than once. So we know there's some disobedience there. In fact, the demon responds in a loud voice. Why is that significant? It occurs to me that Peter is listening to this. 
And as he's talking to Mark, maybe a decade or two later, and says, yeah, and I remembered about that. That voice was loud. It was loud enough for Peter to make a point when he's talking to Mark to write it down. The Spirit questions Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He knows exactly who Jesus is. He is the Son of the Most High. This is not a name. This is a title, and this title is used exclusively for Jesus. But no one else gets to use this title, Son of the Most High God. Jesus then asks the name of the demon. He's not talking to the man, not talking to the demoniac, but the demon. What's your name? And the answer is evasive. Legion. It's a collective name for many spirits under one entity. That's not his name. That's his description. And it's not a literal description. A Roman legion, from where we get the term, had three to 6,000 men in it. In fact, we still sometimes use the word legion today for meaning a lot. His exploits were legion. He did a lot of stuff. But it was not a direct answer to Jesus' question. It was descriptive, but Jesus let it go. Verse 10, And he, the demon, begged him, Jesus, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. The legion, the demon, begged Jesus not to exercise him out of the country. If we look at Luke, the word they use there is, don't send us into the abyss. Apparently, legion needed a host. Now, we saw that there were a herd of pigs there. Pigs are not kosher. This was not a Jewish area. We know that because we talked about it before, but also because there's pig there. Pigs are unclean to the Jews. It's an abomination. There's no eating, butchering, herding, tanning of their hides, anything to do with them. And anybody who did was looked down upon. There were pigs there. Jesus gives permission. He lets them go into the pigs. The spirits leave the demoniac and enter the pigs. We have a rough count. There's about 2,000 of them. That's a lot of pork chops. Apparently, Legion has miscalculated. The man was tormented. He was howling. He was breaking restraints. He was cutting himself. But he was persevering. The pigs lacked the man's restraint, and they became crazed and they rushed down the steep bank, we recall it was a very hilly area, into the sea, and they were drowned. What happened to the demons? We were pretty sure they didn't come out of the pigs and into the bystanders, into the disciples. We would have had a record of that. That's why I say, apparently, Legion needed a host, because they went into the pigs, their host died, and we don't hear from them. This prefigures Christ's 
ultimate victory over Satan and his demons in Revelation 20.10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and was there, and I'm sorry, let me try that again. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's where it gets real. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So picture these Gentile pig herders, some 2,000 pigs. What's the worth of that? That's a, that's a lot. What, what does that mean? Well, I did the math. Of course I did, right? I can't help myself. If pigs are worth between 20 and $50, $200, as I looked up on the internet, the cost today would have been $100,000 to $400,000. So let's just round it to a quarter of a million dollars. Gone. I don't know how many people back in that time had a net worth of a quarter million dollars. That seems like a lot of money for that time. It just disappeared. Now, this is an agricultural story. I wasn't growing up, I didn't grow up on a farm. Maybe it's hard for me to relate. Let me translate this in just to another analogy to help us grasp it a little bit more. Maybe this will help, maybe it won't. Redondo Beach. It's a beach city. Let's say there's another city, a small town up the coast, and they have a surf festival every year. World champion of surfing, world surfing champions. It's their major employer. It brings in half of their income for the city for a year. They got tourists coming in, and they have TV crews and cameras, and they got sponsors coming in, and all these people have places to stay and their places to eat, and they're buying souvenirs. It brings in a lot of money. And the waves are amazing, and they're huge waves. And somehow these surfers are able to navigate these waves. And there's a tourist sitting on the pier fishing, and one of these waves is so huge it comes and knocks them off into the surf. The sea is so rough, they can't reach him with any boats. And you can see him getting sucked out to sea. He's not going to make it. He can't be reached. But Jesus comes along and he calms the waves. There's no surf. The boats go out and rescue him. The man comes in. Yay, the man is saved. We saved a life. But there's no surf. The festival is canceled. The city has a huge economic loss. And I can see myself, if I'm a resident of that city, going, Woe is me. 
our city lost all this money, and I'm not focusing on the life that was saved. I would tend to put more emphasis on how are we going to get through this than praise God that he saved a life. Hopefully I do better than that. But that's how I could see that, that these people in the Decapolis would be thinking. So the herdsmen fled. They were scared. I used to think they were scared because of the economic loss. Oh, no, is he just going to do something else to take more money away? Let, we'll look at this a little bit more in detail. They fled. The crowds came. They went to the city and the county and the country, and they brought people. Now, they didn't have bicycles. They didn't have motorcycles. They didn't have cars, Uber. So this is going to take a little while. They have to go back to the city, back to the country, tell this amazing story. People go, oh, let's go see what's going on. And then they trudge their way back. So this is, it takes several hours. And when they get there, they see the demoniac dressed and sane. And the crowds were afraid. The witnesses, not the disciples, because he would have said disciples if he, said, if he meant that the disciples told the story. The witnesses, the people who are from that region who watched it, told the story. And we know they told it accurately because we don't have the disciples saying, no, no, you messed it up. So these people from the country hear what happened. They hear how the man was cleansed of this demon, how the pigs are gone, they're dead, the scary man is healed and he's sane, and we would expect joy, wonder, adulation, praise, thanksgiving. But the response was fear. Get out of here, Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with him. Why is that? Like I said, I used to think this was an economic loss. But the more I looked at this, I've come to believe this was because Jesus had power over what to them was uncontrollable. This was unknown. If it happened here, it would have made the front pages of the newspaper, or at least a TikTok, right? This was amazing. They were more afraid of Jesus' power than they were of the demoniac. Which brings me to question, are we more afraid of God than we are of Satan? No, no, we're not. We're, we're sitting here in church. But our society certainly acts like it, don't they? I'm going to engage in sinful activity and enjoy the short-term fruits of that. I'm not afraid of God. I'm going to participate in what Satan wants me to do. And then I thought, what about me? Every time I sin, in some way, I am saying, I would rather align myself with Satan than I would with God. Isn't that at some level what we're saying? And I know I'm not alone. As Wonderful work as God has done in this congregation. I know that we all sin because the Bible tells us. Are we more afraid of God than of Satan? 
We would rather have Satan's lies and consequences for our short-term thinking than the blessing and protection of God. As I was looking through this, I came across a quote by a man named R.C. Sproul, which I thought was very germane to this. Let me read this quote to you. Fallen people reject God, not because they do not know his power. Instead, they reject him because all they know is his power and purity. People who have no apprehension of the extent of his goodness, which is displayed or his, in his extension of mercy to repentant men and women, tremble in terror because unholiness cannot bear the presence of holiness. Let me read that last sentence again without the parenthetical expression. People who have no apprehension of the extent of his goodness tremble in terror because unholiness cannot bear the presence of holiness. Continuing, but if we are in Christ, we have been forgiven and can stand before God in safety. And I thought about that. That's exactly what this passage is saying. They saw Christ's power. We know Christ's purity. That's scary because we are unholy. But when you add Christ's mercy, then I can trust him. I do not want to be subject to his wrath because of my unholiness, because his power is great. Verse 18. Getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell him how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus acquiesces to the demands of the Gentiles. He prepares to leave. So the last act in our drama, the healed demoniac comes to Jesus. He has a compelling desire to follow Jesus. He begs him. Jesus says, no. Interesting. But he gives this man alternate instructions. Go tell your friends, the ones who knew you as a possessed man. He becomes an impactful witness to those who observe the possession. If the demoniac had come over to Galilee, to Jerusalem, he would be someone saying, I was this, now I'm, now I'm better. I was possessed, now I'm okay. But as he stays with the Gentiles who knew him as this possessed man, he says, you knew me, you saw what I was, now look what has been done for me. Jesus said, or told him, go tell your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord, the triune God, has done for you. He didn't say how much I had. He's inclusive. 
And I think about how much. I thought that's an interesting phrase. Jesus did one thing. He cast out the, this demon. Now, it was a big thing, but it was one thing. You know, when I talk with my wife, I tell her, thank you for all the things you've done for me. You clean the clothes, you shop, you cook, you clean up after dinner, you pay the bills, you handle our insurance, all these things that uh, she does. That's a lot of things. This was one thing. Why did he say all the things that the Lord has done for you? Because this one thing impacted this man's entire life. Every day was a new bountiful store of blessings to this man because he didn't have that demon. This is the gift that keeps on giving. One other question came to my mind. Previously, Jesus had healed people with demons, and he had told them, don't tell anybody. Why the change, change here? Well, before, he was over in Palestine, in Judea, in Galilee, and he had a time that he, his ministry was going to be fulfilled, and he was constantly pushing against the wedding of Cana. It's not my time yet. The Pharisees are getting upset with him. He had people who were clamoring for him to throw out the Romans. He didn't have any of this over in the Gentile area. It was a Gentile land. There was no messianic pressure to cast out Romans or Pharisees to be offended, just people who needed to be told about Jesus. And praise God, the man obeyed. He traveled around the region, the Decapolis, and the crowds marveled. Our spiritual chains, how are we bound? I ask you at the beginning to be thinking about that. Were you thinking about that or were you listening to me? Probably listening to me. But that's okay. Are we bound by fear? If so, of what are we afraid? The knowledge of power? That gives fear. If I see something powerful... I, I'm afraid, afraid, but if I have knowledge of God's power with his goodness, it gives me security. Are we bound by separation from God, penalty of our sins? Some of us are bound by our own rejection of God. The freedom from those chains can be obtained by salvation through belief in Christ and acceptance of him as Lord but you're sitting, many of you are sitting there saying, yeah, I've been there, I've, I've done that, I, I'm a Christian. But what about, as we talked about the bondage that we have on our, as we work through our daily lives, that process of sanctification, I'm not perfect, I sin every day. I work with people who have bondage, I have bondage. 
let's talk about substance abuse. Immediately comes to mind alcohol, recreational drugs, painkillers that are out of control. What about food, sugars? I struggle with that. But it's not just weight. Is food my idol? Does it dominate my day? Am I always thinking about my diet or what I'm going to be eating? Or, oh, this is all that I get out of life? Or, on the other hand, abstaining. Anorexia and bulimia are critical. Is your diet your idol? What about bondage of your thoughts? Hatred, lust, pornography, covetousness. Couple covetousness examples. Shopping. Shopping's not evil, but if it becomes our idol that we have to do that to be okay, that's a bad thing. Another one, gambling. Yeah, it's just a game until it isn't. What about fear of our past? Brings codependency, people-pleasing. Maybe you're a victim of abuse. Maybe because of your past, you become an abuser. What about bondage to your emotions? The bitterness of unforgiveness. Rage, anger. Now, anger can be sinless. Godly anger certainly is. Bible talks about the sun not going down on our anger. But there are those that anger seems to be perpetual. It continually comes up. Or when it does, it becomes rage, out of control. Other emotions that may bound us. Resentment. I shouldn't have been treated that way, and it's not right, and it's not fair. What about jealousy? What about envy? If any of these are something you can relate to, I have good news. The solution is the same for you and me as it was for this demoniac. It's Jesus. Jesus came to break the chains of bondage. Let me read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus has come to take off our shackles, to break the chains, the spiritual chains, just like he did for this man who had a demon. We need to accept him, bring him into our life, and learn to abide in him. We don't just pray a prayer and say, okay, I'm saved, and go about our lives. Our process is to learn to grab hold of Jesus and abide in him. Let me read from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you want the blessing 
of shedding these shackles, talk to me or one of the, the leaders. Let us now stand and sing praises to our God.